All right. Well, Pastor Mike asked me to step in and finish out his series, Winning Attitudes, and he asked me to speak on the topic of humility. And when he did, I said, well, I can't think of a better person to talk about humility than me. Because when it comes to that, I'm really the best. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, it's actually very humbling to be asked to, be talked to, to talk about this topic because I think it's one of the most challenging things that anyone could talk about. If pride is the root of all sin, then humility being the opposite of that is probably one of the challenge, most challenging things for a preacher to bring a presentation because we all struggle with it and none of us are going to be able to do it fully, right? Amen. So my goal today is to bring you, not from my own personal experience because I have failed at this many, many times as I did just a few moments ago, but I want to show you some suggestions from Scripture. What does Scripture say about humility? How do we apply it to our lives? And hopefully, it'll sink in, and you can apply it even better than I have. So humility, what is it? What comes to mind when you think about humility? Well, to me, I've always pictured somebody who is real soft-spoken, timid, kind of shies in the corner, doesn't promote themselves, maybe even talks down about themselves. That's what I've always pictured it to be, and I think that's what society paints it to be, but I don't think that's necessarily the right picture. Let's talk about that a little bit today. What does it mean to be humble? Well, we live in a world that's kind of the opposite of that, right? Self-promotion. Let me tell you all the great things that I did. Come look at my social media profile, and you can see the new house that I got, the vacation that I'm on, all of the things, the new job that I got, whatever it might be. Come and look at my big showcase. That's what the world looks like today. So it would seem like the Christian thing to do would to do, do the complete opposite of that. And so instead, my narrative is going to be, well, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a, uh, I, I, I'm just low. It almost becomes self-deprecating. I need to talk down on myself. I need to put myself down because that's the opposite of what the world does. So isn't that the Christian thing to do? I'm going to challenge that thought just a little bit today. Neurologically speaking, there are studies that show that positive reinforcement actually increase positive brain function. When I receive positive feedback about something that I've done or something that I've said, it increases the levels of serotonin in my brain. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that uh, it regulates appetite, it regulates how we feel, things like that. So studies have shown that increased rates of serotonin actually make me more successful, they make me more uh, successful in relationships because I feel that I can take a risk because I know that my community around me is supporting me. So who hardwired, us, or who hardwired us that way? We didn't come up with that on our own. We didn't do that because we thought we should. No, that's the way God made us. He made us to need community. And if he made us that way, then it would seem that him asking us to be humble wouldn't mean to go the opposite of that. It wouldn't mean that we should go against the grain. We desire social validation for a reason. Have you ever noticed that on your phone, if you get a notification, that ding sound, we all know it very, very well. And when you hear it, what's the first thing you do? If you're like me, I immediately go for my phone because I want to see what it's about. Who's trying to get a hold of me? Who's trying to say something? Maybe I just posted a picture of my two boys on social media and I want to hear everybody tell me how cute they are. So I want to go and pull it up and see it. I want to see what the notification's about. I need that social uh, reinforcement, and it's not a bad thing. Sure, it can be abused, like anything that God's created, but in its essence, it is not a bad thing. We desire recognition. It's natural, okay? We all want to go where everyone's glad we came. We want to go where the people know. People are all the same. 
People go where everybody, we want to go where everybody knows our name. See if it's going to work today. Well, it's not a big deal. We had a little video. It didn't work in first service. There we go. Maybe. All right, we're good. Never mind. You know, if you know, you know. If you don't, then I can't explain it. Anyway, that's what we want. We want a place where everybody knows us. And think about it. What was God's chief vehicle for bringing about redemption? He chose community. He chose the church. Why do we come to church? Sure, it's about hearing a good word. Sure, it's about hearing uh, some, something encouraging. But it's also about the person you're sitting next to. We come to this body of believers because we know that the person sitting next to us has our back. They have uh, support whenever we're going through a difficult time. If we are walking through something, Pastor Brent just raised, asked everyone to raise your hand if you had a need. Why did he do that? So that we could see that everybody around us is going through something. We can come together. Community is important. And if community is important and that social recognition is something that God put in us, then it would seem that just self-deprecating and putting ourselves down is not what humility really looks like. In order for us to really get at the heart of what humility is, we have to discuss what humility isn't. We often look at the look at me mentality of the world and we seem to think that the Christian thing to do is the opposite. We swing the pendulum to the other extreme. We see the world as being self-centered, full of pride, arrogant, so that humility must be self-deprecating. Humility must just be one big put down where I constantly shy away in the corner and make sure that I don't draw too much attention to myself. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. The problem with this is that if we, if we think this way and we're hardwired to need social validation, but we think that humility is thinking less of ourselves, then we try to be humble. And this usually results in what's called the humble brag. Anybody familiar with the humble brag? There's a lot of examples of it. One of my favorite is the name dropper. The name dropper. I remember having lunch with somebody a while back and they said, now I'm not a name dropper. I could be. And if I was, I'd tell you that I know this person, this person, this person, and this person. But I'm not going to do that because I'm not a name dropper. The other example, and this one's just as bad, is somehow we think that if I'm telling you what somebody else said about me, then it's not bragging. So I can say, you know what so-and-so said about what I did? Maybe, maybe I did a really good job preaching and I'd say, you know, so-and-so just thought my preaching was outstanding. And I'm just telling you that to let you know what they said. What am I doing? I'm trying to get validation. I'm hiding it under the guise of humility, but in reality, it's the same thing. Or then there's the social, evangel or social media evangelist. I don't know why this is becoming such a trend, but have you noticed how many people will post a picture with the person, the homeless person, that they just fed or led to Christ? They'll take a selfie with it. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Why can't you just let it be? But that's what we do. And we try to do it under the guise of humility. But in reality, we still need social recognition. It's still shining through. And just because we're putting on a, a different face does not mean that the motive is any different. And the reality is nobody's falling for it. Have you ever noticed that? Nobody falls for it. We all know what people are doing whenever they do the, 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 the humble brag. They want that social recognition. That's ultimately what they're saying. Now, the list could go on and on about the different types, but unfortunately, this attempt at humility misses the point. And beyond that, it doesn't go unnoticed. I remember whenever I first started preaching regularly, I was probably 18, 19, I preached a sermon and somebody came up to me and they said, brother, that was a good, that was a good word. And I said what every young, insecure minister would say, well, it wasn't me. It was all God. And they said, well, it wasn't that good. 
And they're right. What I've learned is that I could have just said, thank you. I did preach the message. God did, did give it to me, but I did preach it. And he was giving me a compliment. That's all I had to do. I didn't have to try to go for the humble brag. Now, people aren't swayed by our personal put down, our false humility. They see right through it. Our need for validation will always shine through no matter how hard we try to hide it. Now, you see, because when we put ourselves down, we are missing a fundamental principle of what humility is actually about. Think about if you dislike somebody, maybe even hate somebody. What do you do with that person? What, what's in your headspace? You're focused on them, right? The worst thing that you can do to someone is really forget that they exist at all, really to be indifferent. But if I dislike somebody, if I hate somebody, I'm focused on them. I'm thinking about them. It keeps me up at night. My focus is on them. I'm actually doing the opposite of what I think I'm doing, where they become such an important part of my life. And that's the same thing we do when we put ourselves down. If I'm constantly looking at how bad things are for me, how bad of a person I am, how I really don't deserve this, I really don't deserve that, and I'm self-deprecating, I'm still focused on me. That's the opposite of what humility is. I'm still focused on those things. Not to mention, humility in Scripture, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider ourselves better than yourself, others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Self-deprecation is not just putting ourselves down, but it's also putting down our Creator. Now, Linda Fagan painted a beautiful picture for us. I meant to bring it in. I walked out of my office, and I wasn't able to do it before service. But we asked her to paint a picture for our newest addition, Lincoln, uh, to hang over his crib. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And uh, I started thinking about, as I was writing this sermon, you know, me praising that picture is not so much about the picture. It's really about the artist who painted it. If she would have given it to me, and I would have said, that is horrible. That is an ugly painting. I, I can't even believe that anybody would come up with that. Who am I really hurting? The person that made it. So whenever I self-deprecate and I put myself down and I tear myself down because I think that's what it means to be humble, I'm really not because whenever I put myself down, I'm not so much putting me down as I'm putting down the creator, the one who made me the way that I am. And not only did he create me, but he created me in his likeness and in, in, in his image, which means that it was Jesus himself who sat down and modeled when you and I were being created. So when we put ourselves down, we're really hurting the creator and the model. We, Psalm 139.14 says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now we have flaws. We've made mistakes. We're broken people. But God loved us in this way. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Amen. On Friday, we had the men's, the men's uh, conference, which just made me think. Right before service, David asked me to remind everyone that we will not be having men's breakfast this Saturday. Uh, if you would still like to get together, let Rusty know. End of side note, back on track. All right, so we had a men's uh, event on Friday, and John Kitna, a former football player, came up and he gave his testimony. He said that when he was saved, first saved, a friend of his led him to Christ, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my life right. I'm going to get everything cleaned up, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do this, this Christian thing. And his friend said, no, it doesn't work that way. Jesus wants you just like you are. 
He wants all the baggage. He wants all the flaws. He wants everything, and he wants to be the one to put it back together. But we don't like to do it that way. We like to put all the, the, the front on so we can present ourselves and say, God, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how good I am. That's not how it works. That's not true humility. Now, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. If I focus on the creator rather than myself, and I look at what God has done in me, and I say a statement like I am fearfully and wonderfully made, even though I may not see that all the time, I'm not praising myself, I'm praising him. I'm praising the one who made me. Now, if we were to take that fundamental principle and bring it into everyday life, let's talk about a few examples here. Remember, we are putting the creator at the forefront. Relational humility. Think about your relationships today. How many of them are focused on the other person? You may think they are, but let's be honest. How often do we manipulate those around us to ultimately get what we want? Now, manipulate's a strong word. You might say, I have never manipulated in my life. Have you ever guilted somebody? Have you ever made somebody feel obligated to do something for you that they really didn't have to do? Have you ever called in a favor when it was really against that person? You've manipulated. We do it all the time. That's what we do in our relationships. But remember our verse said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is anything that places ourselves and our needs over the needs of others. Now, how does this work out in everyday life? One example might be cutting corners. You ever cut corners in the workplace? Maybe not even in an illegal way or in what would be considered in your circle an unethical way. But have you ever just maybe you wanted to get home a little bit earlier? So you didn't quite do the best job you could. What if that impacted somebody else? I remember whenever I was working at Starbucks, whenever I was in high school, you know, I, I worked closing. I very rarely worked open. I was young. And so I didn't always do the best job that I could do in closing. Well, guess who I heard about it from the next day? The openers. Whenever they didn't just have to do their job, they also had to do my job. And it wasn't long before that stopped on my account because I realized somebody's going to find out. I cut corners. It wasn't illegal. wasn't necessarily unethical, but it was putting my needs above theirs. What's another example? Maybe refusing to collaborate on a project. Maybe you've had an opportunity to do a project with someone, but you know if you share that, you're not going to get the full credit for it. You're putting your needs above theirs. What about undermining someone else's success? Again, whenever I was really young in ministry, I struggled with this. If I saw people who were kind of my peer, maybe uh, under me in terms of experience, or even those higher, I had a really, really hard time acknowledging what they had done, acknowledging what God was doing in their ministry because I was afraid that it took that spotlight off me and put it on somebody else. So I might go out of my way not to mention something that someone did because I wanted to say, hey, look at me, look what God's doing in my life. I was putting my needs above other people now you might say well these these are kind of big big things maybe something like sabotaging others maybe that's extreme but have you ever gone out of your way to make sure that somebody else wasn't successful maybe you don't think you have but let's think about it let's be honest these might be big you might say well those don't really apply to me so let's bring it home have you ever decided to watch a football game instead of playing spending time with your family have you ever come home after a long day and you really just needed to vent to your spouse? You realize that they've had a rough day and they're not at a place they can handle it, but you do it anyway. You're putting your needs above others. In several of these cases, maybe you believe that you have the right to do it. 
Maybe I worked a 60-hour week, and man, I, I deserve to come home, plop down, and watch a football game. Maybe, well, my wife married me, and she knew that with that comes me venting about my day. So she's going to have to hear about it. I have the right. I'm entitled. And maybe you're right. But are you putting your needs above the others? What Paul didn't say was, now, kind of weigh the options and decide if, if you're entitled to this, then it's okay. It's okay to put your needs above theirs. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, don't put your needs above other people. See others as better than yourself. Now, I, I was okay with the golden rule whenever I learned this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, the way that I applied that whenever I was younger was, if somebody mistreated me, that's how they want to be treated, so that's what I'm going to do. Anybody else? But this one's a little bit harder to weasel out of because it specifically says consider others better than yourself. There's not a whole lot of ways around that. It's pretty clear. So whether it's at home, in the workplace, at church, whatever it might be, we are called to put others before ourselves. Now, here's the real kicker about in relationships. I've done some counseling with, with couples and with families and things like that. And I found that the most common issue among family conflict is our perception being right and wrong. My wife and I will celebrate eight years of marriage this September, and can I tell you that we have had a lot of really ridiculous fights about really ridiculous things because I thought I was right and I thought she was wrong. Such as the way the toilet paper goes. And where to squeeze the toothpaste. Apparently it's not the middle. I didn't know that. I did know which way the toilet paper went because there's actually a patent that proves it, but that's another story. <laughs> but that's what we do. I think I'm right. I think you're wrong. And of course I do. I'm me. I've spent a lot of time convincing myself that I'm right. I've been with me through every experience that told me that I was right. I've been with me with every rationale that told me that I was the smartest person in the world. And it wasn't until eight years ago I realized that wasn't true. I'll let you do the math on that one. But that's what we do. We think we're right all the time. And even sometimes we don't think we're right, but we're not going to let anybody know it. We're not going to let anybody in on that secret. Because as soon as we do, we let our guard down. That was the hardest thing for me. And I still work through it in marriage. I'm supposed to be the, the head. I'm supposed to be the leader, right? I'm supposed to have all the answers. Well, can I tell you this morning, I was struggling with something and I texted my wife and she set me straight. Not in, a, not in a bad way, in a loving way. And you were right. It's hard for me to admit because I feel like I'm supposed to be the one that's leading. And when she does it, it's hard for me. Hard for me to be humble. Hard for me to step down from that. But you know what? Part of humility is admitting when we're not right. Amen. And sometimes it's the way that we handle being right. Sometimes it's the way that we approach the situation. But we don't just do it in our families. We don't just do it around. We, we also do it with the world. And, and one thing that's really complicated with being a Christian is that everybody thinks they're right. That's just part of human nature. But with Christians, we tend to think we're right. And then we find proof for it in Scripture. And can I tell you today, I firmly believe this. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you try hard enough. You can support any claim you want to claim. That's after me spending 10 years in seminary. Now, I'm not one who would tell you all my education, but if I were to... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I've been around it enough to know 
that just because you think you know the Bible doesn't mean you do. And what I've found is one of the biggest, uh, biggest things against us having humility is how well we think we know the Bible. Now you might say, well, of course, I, I, I've read the Bible. How could I be wrong? Let's talk about that. There was a Methodist scholar who came up with a, um, a tool called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. The Wesleyan Quadrilateral are four factors that influence our, uh, the, the way that we shape our theological belief. Those are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, I saw someone post about this the other day, and they said, I only accept one of those, scripture. I base everything in scripture. And I thought about that for a little bit, and I thought, huh, I wonder where they were first exposed to scripture. I highly doubt that they stumbled upon it with fresh eyes, and they didn't know what it was, and they read it for the first time and shaped their own opinion. No, they probably learned about it in a Sunday school class or sitting in a seat like this as brother so-and-so explained to them not only what the Bible said, but what it meant. And from that first time they were exposed to it, they began, that began to shape the way they viewed Scripture. And now, even to this day, even though they've done study on their own, when they hear that Scripture, they hear brother so-and-so's voice telling them what it means. That's what we do. That's our tradition. Every single one of us has that story. We were shaped in some, some community of believers maybe it was your family, maybe it was church, on what the Bible means. And we grow up with that presupposition, and it colors the way that we read Scripture. The second is experience. Now, I was always taught, you don't let experience tell you how to read Scripture, but let me tell you that it does. Because I read the prodigal son story all my life, but as soon as I became a father, it looked completely different. I've read Scriptures on prayer and on uh, miracles, but it looks a lot different when I lost my dad to cancer. I've read scriptures on the afterlife, but it looks a whole lot different whenever you've held the hand of somebody as they take their last breath on a hospital bed when I was a hospital chaplain. My experiences shape the way that I view scripture. So then what do I do with it? Because I acknowledge that my, my, my tradition shapes it, my experiences shape it. We've acknowledged that. What do I do? Well, now I've got to deconstruct that some and try to figure out, am I really getting to the heart of what the passage says? Or am I just regurgitating what I was always taught? And in my being right, am I accurate? Or am I just being dogmatic? Well, that steps into reason. I have to begin to rationalize and, and figure out, am I just saying what I heard? Am I just saying what makes sense to me? Or am I actually looking and trying to get to the heart of the passage? Now, before I go any further, I want to make a statement very clear. I believe that the Bible is inspired. I believe it is infallible. I believe it is errant. But I also believe that you and I are not. And when we read scripture, we are interpreting it and trying to get to the heart of it. But when I try to make a statement dogmatically about what's right and wrong, I tend to focus on my interpretation, even if it's not accurate. Now, that doesn't mean there's not truth in the Bible, but it does mean that in my finite mind, I'm never going to be able to fully grasp it. But we try to, because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel good to take classes on Genesis and dig into the, 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 the new creation or new earth creation versus old earth creation. We find all this evidence for why the earth really was created in six days as opposed to 6,000 years, why some believe. And we come to figure out exactly what it is. Then we take that information and we want to argue it with people, show you how smart I am, show you how much I've studied, show you how many books I've read. Guess what? It doesn't matter. 
at all. No bearing at all. Then you go to the opposite side, and I take classes on eschatology and end times, and, and I try to figure out when Jesus is coming back and all this stuff, and, and I get my, my heels dug in on this idea. It doesn't matter at all. I begin to become dogmatic about that, and I, I feel like I've accomplished something because I've read a lot of Scripture. I've memorized a lot of Scripture. I can argue with the best to the best. It's all up here. But I can argue with the best to the best. I've missed the point. I'm not able to be humble anymore because my focus is no longer on the creator. It's on me and my ability to come up with answers to objections that really don't matter. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't study those things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't dig into those things. I'm not saying that they're not important. I am saying that at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat. And God's not going to say, now, which did you believe? The six days or 6,000 years thing? Because that's a really big deal. No. There's a lot of information in the Bible. And reading the Bible is kind of like having a conversation with Brent Shields. <laughs> if you ever have about 45 minutes to an hour, two hours, just come ask Brent a question. It doesn't matter what it is. The answer is going to be the same. You're going to find out about the history of Cleburne. You're going to find out about pretty much a play-by-play -play of every day he's ever worked here, which is 25 years and in about an hour, you're going to forget what your question was altogether. Now, to his credit, Brent is an incredible storyteller, and so you won't mind. You'll, you'll like to hear the story. That is until you come back the second day and you hear all the same stories again. But that's kind of what the Bible's like. <laughs> we do. We love you. We love you. And I'm sure he'll tell this story for the next 15 years. Um, but have you ever known somebody that you try to tell them a story and you're like, you will never guess who I ran into at the store. And they're like, why did you go to the store? And you're like, I'm not trying to tell you a story about going to the store. I'm trying to tell you about a person. That's what the Bible's like. There's a lot of information pointing to a purpose. And that purpose is a person named Jesus Christ. And I can study that scripture until I'm blue in the face and I can answer all your questions. But if I don't know him, what was the point? Amen. Now maybe you need somebody else to, to kind of clarify this. And I've got a good one. Jesus himself. In John chapter 5 verses 39, Jesus said, You pour over scripture because you think that in it... The, let me start over. <laughs> You pour over scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify of me. We tend to do that. We tend to pour over it looking for answers. It doesn't matter how many answers you have if you don't know the answer. You can pour over it. You can study it. Humility is about placing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Because we realize that without him, all the answers that we discover, all the principles that we apply are meaningless unless we know him. What do we tend to do? We tend to read scripture from this perspective. We tend to look at it and say, how can I apply this principle to me? How can I make myself better? I want to be the best version of me that I can be. How can I, how can I study the, the story of David? 
Okay, now I see. I need to go and be a, a, a giant slayer. That's what I need to be, a giant slayer. I need to go out and I need to figure out how I can attack all the giants in my life. Can I tell you, that's not what that story's about. That story's about Jesus coming and fighting your fight because you couldn't do it. It's not about you. And we could go through story after story after story after story, and I could tell you what you probably think it's about, and I can tell you it's not about you. It's about him. Doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Doesn't mean we can't apply some principles. But if that's what you're trying to get from it, then you've missed the point, and you're putting yourself on center stage. You're making yourself the main, the main character, and you're not. I'm not. He is. Everything in Scripture points to him. Humility is placing your faith, your confidence in Jesus alone. The primary building block in developing humility is, pla- is placing less and less emphasis on us and our relationships in general and in our everyday lives. We make ourselves the center of our story. We think that if we just work harder, then we'll become the person that we want to be. You want to talk about humility? Let's talk about the fact that no matter how hard we work, no matter what we do, no matter how many things we try to accomplish, it will never amount to anything because we are incapable of pleasing God. That's why we have a Savior. That's why Jesus came and paid the price for us so that he could be the bridge between where we are and where we need to be. If we begin to focus on ourselves I saw something recently where somebody was trying to compare Jesus with Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and show how their teachings were similar. And I, no, they weren't. There might be some similarities in, in, in the application, but Jesus' message was clear. There's only one way. And the, the rest of them, they, they might have parts and pieces, but they don't have the whole story. Because you can try to live that, but you can't. You can't do it. Humility says there's only one answer. There's only one answer. Now, some people go the opposite extreme, and they feel like my experience is more important than Scripture itself. Scripture's all all nice and and great. It's good, and it's a good thing to read, but ultimately, I just need to, they take the extreme of focusing on Jesus. They take the extreme of uh, focusing on their experiences. There's church, there are churches all over the world that they attempt to have an encounter with Jesus in such a way that everything's so personal and it's so uh, inside. And they don't realize that what they're doing is moving away from the gospel message and getting into things that are far removed from what scripture actually teaches. That's not humility either. Because humility says, no, I'm not trying to understand all the content, but the content is here to keep me in line. It is here to keep me in line. That's part of what humility is. Now, can I tell you that humility is hard? No, I'm going to change that. I know that's the point, but I'm going to change it. Humility is impossible. It's impossible to be humble. Because in in our nature... In our very core, we want to be recognized. We want to be seen. And yes, that is something hardwired inside of us. But what we've done is we've abused it. What we've done is we've misapplied it. And it goes all the way back to the garden. When God said, look what I've created for you. I've given you everything that you need. And what did we say? I want more. 
I want more. It's not enough. I want more. That's in our nature. That's built in to desire more. To, never, to not be satisfied with where we are, but to go beyond. Humility goes against our nature. It exposes our vulnerabilities. You know, you know why I went to seminary? Because I felt like I'd never be taken seriously unless I did. That's me being humble. Because somehow I came to the point of thinking that people valued me because of what I knew. That's why I studied. So I could answer questions. Because I didn't feel like I could find value in any other way. I felt like I wasn't equipped prior It made me feel vulnerable, it made me feel exposed, and I felt like I needed to fill that with content. So that if somebody came up to me and asked me a question, I didn't have to stand there like, I I don't know. But can I tell you one of the most humble statements to say is, I don't know. And, And the irony is that now that I have spent time studying and I do know a lot of those answers, I find myself saying I don't know a lot. Because what I've come to realize is as much as I think I know, there's somebody else out there who knows something different and we can have a good conversation. But it exposes vulnerabilities whenever I'm humble. Humility is perceived as weakness. If you work in corporate America or even uh, in in some blue-collar jobs, being humble is not necessarily an asset. You get made fun of for that. You get picked on for that. You'll get the worst jobs on the the table. You'll be perceived as somebody who can't make the cut because, well, they're just a pushover. They're humble. They look at other people's interests. Some companies, you have to look out for your interest and for the company's interest or you won't make it at all. It's hard to be humble. It's perceived as weakness and sometimes it is. But humility is really about laying down your rights for those that you love. Now there's two meanings to this. The first is, like we mentioned earlier, maybe I worked those 60 hours and I deserve to come home and sit on the couch and watch football. And maybe you do. 60 hours, that's a long time. You probably are entitled to a little bit of downtime. Maybe after having a rough day, the person that you married, they they should be willing to listen. But humility is laying down our rights. Humility is saying, yeah, I've worked 60 hours, but you know what? My two boys want to go outside and play ball. I'm going to put their interests above mine. Maybe if I have something that I need to vent but I realize my wife's had a rough day. Maybe I can save it for another time. Honestly, most of the time when you do that, you realize it wasn't that big of a deal anyway. That's just a freebie. But it's laying down rights. The second meaning to that, I have been right a couple times in our marriage. A couple times. I didn't handle it right. And most of us don't. Just because you are right doesn't mean you have to act like it. That's not only true in marriage, that's also true in everyday relationships, and it's also true with how we witness to other people. I get sick whenever I see Christians surprised that the world acts like the world. How else are they going to act? Well, what do we do? We pick up our Bible and we say, you're wrong, let me show you why you're wrong, let me show you why I'm right, and you know what, you are right, big deal. You may have just lost the opportunity to lead them to Christ because of your attitude. Because you think that the knowledge that you have is enough to lead them. It's not. 
People only care about how much you know when they, care, when they know how much you care. That's how we need to be. Sometimes I think we feel that we have to defend God. God doesn't need our defense. We feel like we have to defend the Bible. I see stuff on Facebook all the time about this new information that's going to disprove the Bible. Okay. It's not our job to defend it. It's our job to live it. It's our job to preach it. And that's it. Humility says, I'm going to lay down my rights for those that I love. Now, earlier we mentioned that often humility is hard because we feel that we have rights. We feel that we need to be treated a certain way, but we can lay those down. Where do we get that from? Where's the model? Jesus himself. In Philippians, it says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. What does that mean? That means that Jesus had every right to stay where he was, to enjoy heaven for all of eternity, to destroy us, to start over, to do whatever he wanted, but what he chose to do was to step down from that and come be with us, take on flesh, be humbled, submit to death, even death on a cross, Jesus had the right to remain where he was. He had the right to go about his business for all eternity. It's the same mindset that Paul is calling us to today. Not some false deprecating humility that seeks to make others believe that we're pious and holy, but a humility that says, I know what I deserve, but I'm going to lay it down for the sake of my relationships. I'm going to forsake my selfish ambition and place the interest of others above my own. Humility is an ongoing decision. Sometimes we think that it's one and done. Okay, I was humble in this situation. I'm done. No, it's ongoing. It's a conscious decision every single day. The couples that I have counseled in their situations that are going on, if, if one of them would just humble themselves, the problem probably would have fi fixed itself. And if they're not willing to, then that's it. It's an ongoing thing, a daily decision every single day. And there's a model for this as well. There's a reality that often gets overlooked. A reality that says that Jesus did come. He took on flesh. He was born in a manger. He submitted to death. And we look at that and say, that's humility. That's what he did. And it's true, it is. But there's actually more to that story. Because not only did he rise from the dead, he ascended into heaven in his resurrected body. His resurrected body that was flesh and blood. There's a saying that goes around, and this is one of those things where I'm, I tend to be very pedantic. I like things to be accurate. I do not like the saying, let's be Jesus with skin on. Because Jesus is Jesus with skin on. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, still in the flesh, and he will be for all of eternity. What's he doing? He's setting an example that you and I can be humble day in and day out. He will remain associated with us, associated with sinners for all of eternity, to model and to set the example that you and I are to humble ourselves, putting the interest of others above ourselves every single day.
Humility is about realizing that we really don't deserve anything at all. We talked about rights. We talked about uh, entitlement and how we lay that down. But if we're really honest, we don't deserve anything at all. And everything we have is a blessing. Everything we have, we are not entitled to. I hear people all the time, and, and I do it too. Please, please understand, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. I do this too. I really wish that God would do this. I really wish that God would do that. I, I deserve to have this. I've worked really hard, and I deserve to have this. I don't deserve to go through pain. But as the dread pirate Robert said in The Princess Bride, life is pain, princess, and anyone who tells you different is selling you something. And it's true. It's a funny movie, but it's true. Life is pain from the moment that we start to the moment that we end. There's no promise otherwise. God never said, if you, if you come into the fold, everything's going to be good. If you humble yourself, everything's going to be good. No, we don't deserve anything. The pain of life is there. We brought it on ourselves through sin. And when we become entitled and we begin to say, God, I deserve what we do is we put ourselves on that throne and we try to tell God how to do his job. That's not humility. So yes, it's laying down rights, but it's really acknowledging that we don't have any rights at all. What's funny is that we've, we've, we have a nation that's built on that principle. And I think we should. I think we should fight for rights. There's some level of it that's true. But I think as Americans, we get this idea that now I have the right to everything. I have the right to whatever the government tells me I do, really, is what it kind of comes down to. Maybe we need to rethink that at times. And just consider, is that really humility? So today as we close, do you struggle with humility? Let me answer that. Yeah, we, we do. We all do. It's the human problem. Do you struggle to maintain your rights? Do you find ways to reinforce your own views, even if they're misguided, simply because you desire to be right? Are you willing to admit that you've made, you've made yourself into the main character of your story, neglecting the interest of others, and more importantly, that you are overshadowing the glory of God that you should be reflecting? As we pray today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give these three invitations. Do you need to place him back as the main character in your life? Maybe he's never really been there. Maybe it's been you. Maybe you came to Christ trying to be a better person, not realizing that coming to Christ was about you saying, I'm not worth it, take me and do what you want with me. Maybe your discipleship process has been, let me add all this stuff to my life so that I can be a better version of me. If that's the case, then he's not the one that's center stage. Because center stage says, I am here humbly serving you. Do what you want with me. Do you have a hard time focusing on the interest of others? I do. I have a hard time with that. And I think if we're all honest, we'd all admit it. Because we're hardwired to look out for number one. We're hardwired to be with us. To be on our team. But Christ is asking us to do something different. 
And finally, are you having a hard time finding contentment in what you've been given? That doesn't mean that you can't hope for good things. It doesn't mean you can't work for good things. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have nice things. It just means that rather than complaining about what you don't have, maybe stop and focus on what you do. Maybe humbly accept what God has provided to you rather than constantly saying, God, if I could just have this, if I could just have that, why haven't you given me this? With every head bowed and eye closed in the place today, I want you just to take a moment and reflect on these questions. Are they there? Are they things that you need to deal with? Are they things that you need to work through? At some level, maybe you don't see it. Maybe you need God to open your eyes and to see at least one of these as an area that you can apply. As we pray today, I would ask you to do this. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Our altars are open. You're free to come up if, if, if that is something that helps you to, to, to find that place of humility. Coming before Him, bowing before Him. I'd encourage you to do that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have spoken to us through scripture. I thank you that it's inspired, that it's infallible, that, that it's inerrant. And I thank you for helping us to acknowledge that we're not, that humility does not come naturally to us, but it's something you've called us to do. It's impossible, but you've equipped us to do it. I pray today that you would breathe new life into us that you would help us to step off the throne that we've placed ourselves in and put you back there. I pray that you would help us to begin to focus on the interest of others. Maybe we don't even see it. Maybe we don't even pay attention. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see the needs of those around us. I pray for marriages today that you would help at least one member of that couple to feel the need to humble themselves because I believe that's all it takes to change. I pray that you'd help us to find contentment in who we are, where we are, and not constantly be asking for something more as though we deserve it. But I thank you for all that you do. band leads us in a song real quick, I would just encourage you again, if you just want to make your way down to the front, the altars are open.
there's a healing light just beyond the clouds though i've walked through fire i see clearly now i know nothing has been wasted no failure or mistake you're an artist and a potter of the canvas and the clay you make all things work together for my future and for my good. You make all things work together for your glory and for your name. You make all things work together. together. 
about, neither do I, neither does anybody in this room, he's not finished with us yet, all we can do is continue to put him as the focal point in our life, and watch how he changes us, Father, thank you once again for this incredible Sunday morning where we get to hear your word, and apply it to our lives, I pray that you'd help us to be humble, keeping you at the forefront of our lives, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Before I dismiss, I want to make one quick announcement. Tonight, the uh, McNeils will be in concert. If you were here last year, they are a family of about 12, uh, they have 12 kids, and their bluegrass would be the style, would you say? Southern Gospel bluegrass. And it's really, really a, a good time. So come out. Doors open at 5. Concert starts at 6. Uh, we hope to see you there. And if we don't, then we'll see you on Wednesday or next Sunday. Thank you guys. Have an incredible week. Lord, remind me I'm wonderfully made. You're an artist and a potter. I'm the canvas and the clay. I know nothing has been wasted, no failure or mistake. You're an artist and a potter.